Hello, Jeremy. Hello, Raphael. You are not at home. I am with you. I'm with the Americans. USA. This is, <laughs> how, how long has it been since you entered the U.S.? It has been since Thanksgiving 2019. So Is that the like longest co- period you've COVID been away? When COVID was just a baby. Yeah. The longest I've ever been away from the United States, for sure. 100%. Yeah. Ever, ever before I was before 2003, the first time I entered the U.S. And no, if no, I, actually, yeah. If I remember correctly, you were free to enter the U.S. or did you need a special document? Okay, I think the board, the Americans have never really closed their their. Trump had like a, a short closed order for the the Canadian border, but for the last few months anyway, Canada Canadians can go into the U.S. The problem is, no, you're not allowed back into the country, Canada. So. You are, but you have to quarantine, and they have the, all these rules and fines. How, how do they the check? What's the procedure? Like you, are you helicoptered from the airport to your home, and then there's a national guard? Or how does it work? Okay, so first of all, yeah, I'm a very irresponsible Canadian. By the way, when I was at the airport to come down here, I was like one of ten people in the entire airport. There were two flights in the <laughs> country. <laughs> it's pretty not chill. high demand. Yeah, and yeah. no one in Canada is complaining. They're like you. In fact, I talked to someone just before I left, and he's like, you know the way it should work? The military should escort you by, the, you know, yeah. from the border to a jail cell. And I was like, okay, yeah, well, I'm different. I, I do enjoy my- the, the, the COVID <laughs> travel that I had so far, going to the Netherlands a few times, and the plane's almost empty. It's very nice. Yeah. So, But once I got to Chicago, which was my transfer point, it was like a zoo. It was like crowds on top of crowds. Like, yeah, oh, there's no COVID. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I mean, people were wearing masks because it was required, but they were taking them off to drink beer. You know, like, it, they were yeah. very much like... No, but you know that beer kills the, the <laughs> COVID, so it's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so the only rule is, um, the loophole we're exploiting is if you if you drive uh, back, I'm, you're not allowed to drive out as a Canadian, you're allowed to fly out. And that, but if you fly back in, you have to stay in a hotel, and it, they charge you an absurd rate, like it's a, ch- a tax. It's like $3,000 for three nights in this hotel where they like they lock you up and they like monitor you but if you drive back you don't have to do that you you can quarantine in your own home well i understand and, that logic because yeah. you're you're in an enclosed uh, vehicle and yeah. so you don't have to go on public transportation to go home and etc yeah so we're driving back Kristen drove down here but then is no it an, after America. that is it an honor system that you stay at home no, they come and check up on you, and they like call you and say like, "What are you doing right now?" Because this, <laughs> this is I, this is where I'm curious. Because there are some countries that are fine with the geo tracking, so uh, you know, yeah. like China is fine. And then in the Netherlands, they had this quarantine rule, but it was what they call an an urgent advice. Like, a, <laughs> it, it's not a law, but but. Uh, however, language allows us. Yeah. yeah. However, yeah. language allows us to be forceful. Within the bounds of language, <laughs> we're going to force you, but we can't force you by law. So we're going to say, pretty please, please, with sugar on top, stay home. That's now, like a form of like social law, which yeah. is like, if you don't follow this, you're mean. But now they're trying to change the law because they're so far behind with vaccines, they still have to think about this stuff. Mm. And they're changing the law and they're saying, oh, we're going to make it a law, but we're going to check by calling you and we're going to train our calling team to recognize if you're in public space. So if you mm. pick up the phone and it sounds like you're on a train, you get a fine. Okay. But if you don't pick up the phone and you wait till you're in a quiet place and call them back or something, I don't know. Like, they can't force you by law to pick up the phone. You can say, like, well, uh, I was oh, in the shower, so how can I pick up the phone? Like, yeah, it's it's just interesting to me 
it seems overall there's like you can go all the way free and just say fuck it we can't control it or you can go all the way surveillance state and well, but the middle seems hard yeah yeah but it seems like, hard I, it yeah. seems hard yeah i mean i got a test before i came here which was the law and then i had to like sign a paper that said i'd taken a test and show them the test but on top of that i've been vaccinated you know i've had my first shot yeah um, well i i had to do a thousand tests traveling to the netherlands and even you have to do a test PCR test three days before, and then a, a mm-hmm. short-term test four hours before, a rapid test. Right. And what's funny is they don't accept the vaccination. So I, I'm double vaccinated, but they still don't accept that. So that you still have to do all the things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're already talking about creating a vaccination pass, but when they don't even have vaccination, it, it's all kind of like, it seems things yeah. are changing so fast that the lawmaking can't keep up. That Maybe that's my... My, Either way, like I yeah. feel, I feel like the chimpanzee in outbreak or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh no, Jeremy's on the run. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> watch, out, watch out! He got out. How did I, it happen? I, I, I would have to say I could see you in that role for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you should be a motion capture artist. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I'm I'm glad to be down here and with family that I haven't seen in a long time. It feels like recentering. Even actually, I'll say I'll share this because maybe you had a similar experience. But like. Or regardless if you did, but when I got on a plane, I was suddenly having thoughts that I hadn't had in a long time. You know, like there's like shower thinking. For me, there yeah. was always plane yeah. Planes thinking. are very productive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had no, like major. But this, this is this is I. I catch myself often that I will repeat things so much that they become a rule, and so I'll <laughs> say this or that, and I have one of these things that I keep repeating that. The internet is incredible for distribution, but very difficult for creativity because it's so distracting. Mm-hmm, and yeah. I keep saying it, and it's you know it's a cool thing to say, like everybody agrees. It's like yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and, it's so distracting. And maybe it's not even true, but that feeling when you're in the airplane and you're like too cheap to pay for the Wi-Fi, and all of a sudden the ideas come. Yeah, it's really real, right? It's not in my head. It's incredible. Yeah, but it, it, this is what I'm saying. Like, it, it, I think in all my interviews, people ask me, "Are you inspired by the internet?" It's like, no, it's the opposite. I, I love the internet a, for distribution, yeah. but it's it's not a good place to get ideas. Yeah, Kristen's been trying to write, you know, for her thesis, and she's like, "I gotta." I, I actually it was one of the reasons she came down here besides visiting family. She's like, "I just need to be isolated." Like. And and I and I I don't want any distractions from not even the possibility of distractions and yeah and when I, and when I get back for, at one point when she's like when I get back I'm gonna look for like an Airbnb with no Wi-Fi or something well it, it's it's <laughs> the Ed Reinhardt is a minimalist painter between minimalism and abstract expressionism and he he always talked about like the studio space should be a place where you don't mm. have any chores of of the house because. Yeah. That can be a form of procrastination where you're supposed to sit down and do the work, but you're like, oh, I got to organize the fridge. There's a couple of old jars in here that need to go. Yeah. And, yeah. I saw an interview with Joan Jonas where, you know, think of her like as a pioneer in video art, but she has drawings now. But she was talking about the same thing. Like her studio is, you know, off limits to any electronics and things like that. Yeah. And uh, and no one even knew she had the studio. It was kind of an anonymous space between spaces. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so that's where I am. Um, let's think of this as a space between spaces. And you're, you're coming to New York next week. I'm going to try and visit you. Yeah, which would be a yeah. rare occasion. Um, yeah. See my brother and and my my and then go up through Troy. I have 
Kristen's brother and sister up there. So, are I you going to go see some museums? Are they open? Is that like yeah. a thing? Is that you just have to buy a time ticket. So museums still exist. Yeah, they they <laughs> only closed very briefly. It was with the, but it's nice now because it's not so busy. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, There's you no could also see galleries if you want to save money. No, I mean, I I, I might go to a museum. It would yeah. be like I honestly this year. I don't know. Maybe you haven't had to feel this way because you're in New York. But I was just like. Museums don't exist anymore. What am I going to do? Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. I'll do all this other stuff. Yeah, NFTs. but I and, and podcasting and yeah, but I I think uh, it's it's just kind of random how in which country you are and what the rules are this year and it makes a big difference in your life and you know if you're in well, Sweden life is not that different and then if you're in Spain life is very different and uh, yeah I was like kind of planning for a museum exhibition this summer and then they're like we're going to play it by ear or whatever and just a small like a small thing and in Europe and then they're like no it's not going to happen so we're thinking fall now right but I think broad swaths of time have just been shut down and in Toronto I was talking to a gallery there about an exhibition and they're like you know, by the time February rolled around, they're like, we don't think summer's going to happen, right? So I do think for a lot of our listeners who are artists, traditional artists especially, like, because I've been working with some performance artists as well, and I was like, hey, what have you been doing? Like, have you been showing? Or they're like, no, what are you talking about? They looked at me with like an insulted look. And, yeah. um, you know, because all of that programming got shut down. So um, now, yeah, because even if you were saying like the MoMA's open, right? MoMA's not doing, like, performance art at the no, moment. No, right no, it's, it's yeah. a different pace. I think also they, they stretch the exhibitions out much longer now because there's less visitors. Is the kitchen open? Like, traditional performance venues? Not it's sure. Broadway? But I, I, I did hear that there's a couple of openings now and people are so happy that they're quite full. So I haven't gone yet, but, like, the, mm. yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I, I, I do think if you come to New York, you'll be pretty shocked how relaxed the rules are. Because here, I'm in Maryland. If you can hear a lawnmower in the background. Yeah, shout the out suburbs. to the lawnmower. Keep, keep that grass short. <laughs> it's like that. It's like a GIF, you know, where you zoom out and there's like a lawnmower and then there's like, you know, 10 more lawnmowers. Like all the lawns have lawnmowers. Well, it's Sunday. It's, that's what yeah, you got to do. Exactly. Sunday after church, it's mowing the lawn time. Yeah. But um, where I'm at, people are following the rules. Like I just went out for a walk before the podcast and everyone had a mask on. I was listening to... Um, but didn't the, the, the rules now, if you're outside and you're double vaxxed, then you uh, you don't have to wear a mask? Yeah, but I think here in this part of D.C., like this is just outside Washington, D.C., and it's a, so it's a very Democrat stronghold. Yeah, yeah, but Joe Biden publicly said that. Yeah, yeah, I, don't, I guess so. But well, I, I was, I was hearing about the, the, the mask wearing is kind of a political signal, mm-hmm. saying which team you're on. Oh, interesting. So, of course, the mask is more uh, liberal progressive, and then that becomes your badge, and then you yeah. take it off, and people think you're an asshole. And uh, it's yeah. like, no, no, I'm vaxxed. But, Before yeah. the pandemic, it was the same thing with pants. <laughs> <laughs> Wearing pants or no pants? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or shoes. Maybe it was yeah. like shoes, no shoes, no service kind of thing. Totally cool. Yeah, no yeah, shir- yeah. Oh, and you know, it's probably shirts. But pants is definitely like <laughs> you're a little bit further left it's, or it's, further right than uh, it's your turtleneck. Right. That's the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The more clothing, the more conservative, of course. Or no, it, well, not more conservative, more liberally conservative. Um, Who, knows? Who knows? Who yeah. knows? What is it? What is politic? Anyway, it doesn't really matter. But um, 
I was walking outside listening to this Beeple Jordan Wolfson podcast. Was on, on, we never reference other podcasts on the show. But the Davis Werner Gallery podcast. Yes, Werner Gallery has a podcast. It's terrible. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they often they've it's had not Wolf bad is, that podcast. I have to it's say. not. There's like a yeah. host, and then they bring on artists for conversation. In in fact, it seemed inspired by us. Even the opening music, you know. If, if you I I thought that yeah, <laughs> but that I mean that's when does that not happen? Come on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we know how that the they've been stealing from us. <laughs> yeah. Blue chip yeah, we know how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the the reason I bring up the podcast is I think it does relate to the question um, we have this week. So the, on the podcast, they had Jordan Wolfson, famous for making dis, uh, a VR work where um, someone gets killed with a baseball bat. Horrible. I think he's more art. famous for the robots. <laughs> no, you're right. And for like yeah. sex robots. And then yeah. uh, Beeple. Yeah, he's, he's like uh, the Harmony Korean of the art world. Yeah, yeah. He's not a likable character, let me put it that way. And then they had I, I, I like that aspect, but that's another <laughs> story. I actually yeah. like Harmony Corrine. I'll put it in perspective. No, um, no, but I, 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 I like people who, who can play the role of the asshole well. Oh, okay, yeah. So he plays that yeah. role. That's his he's yeah. he's a nemesis in the art world. And then Beeple, who is like so Beeple actually what's his artist name? I never remember. Um, Mike Winkleman or something. Yeah, right. It's not very attractive as a name for Selling art like well, Jeremy yeah. Bailey, it's in the Jeremy Bailey category of yeah. <laughs> doesn't sell well, he, art. Well, he's he, he's definitely doesn't look or talk like a typical artist. Yeah. So yeah. they, but the interview between them, I think, you know, if we're going to get into today's question, um, is uh, you know got me thinking because, and I, I'm glad you posted it on your on your Twitter and brought my attention to it. But it was like two people talking from different planets about what art is, which yeah. Sounds cringeworthy, and it was at times. Um, yeah, but, but it I makes you think, so like, oh, apart. who decides what art is? Yeah, I mean, they which were really to, far, far Yeah, apart. which goes to our question this week, so maybe we should have a listen. Yeah, let's listen to it. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. I'm Victor Lileka, a half-Belgian, half-Moldovian painter based in London. My question is, do you make art for an audience? And uh, the sub-question... Do you think um, dominant distribution platforms, such as social media or marketplaces, um, are steering the audience away from connoisseurship and towards fandom? Um, Personally, I'm not sure if I'm doing art for anybody, but my most rewarding audience moment was IRL, uh, when a small kid stood about five minutes in front of my painting, um, amused and mesmerized. Thank you, Victor, for the question. And um, I think I, it's safe to say that Jeremy and I are kind of in the middle of, of those two worlds of, of the the controlled art world, uh, collective museum world, and the open internet democratic big audience world. But maybe from yeah. afar, we're, we're not even close to... The democratic internet world. I don't well, know. You, you're kind of a pioneer of um, not of plat. You didn't start on platforms, actually. You owned your own platform. You said the internet is the platform, right? Well, that was the only choice. Yeah, the, there was no social media yet. Yeah, I didn't yeah. have that choice because I was making video early on, and so the only platform was YouTube. Um, yeah, and it was there was Vimeo too, but Vimeo 
to be honest, like people's computers weren't fast enough to play the video files on Vimeo early on. So well, maybe maybe to go back to the question. Sorry to get so specific uh, yeah. so fast. <laughs> the, the, the question about audience is: I was very aware in the beginning that I was interested in things that the uh, art system in the Netherlands was not interested in, and so it was definitely illegal to make jokes. It was a hundred percent forbidden. Yeah, so make a total time. taboo. And so I was like, okay, if I want to be myself, then I have to find my own avenue. So it wasn't so much a question of audience, but more a question of avenues of permission. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way I've always seen it, that it starts with what you want, your own curiosity. It's like, oh, I, you close your eyes and like, yeah. oh, I have this idea and I want this idea to become real and I want to share this idea. And then if your idea fits somewhere, then it'll probably go there. So if you, your idea is like, oh, I want to visualize lines of text from Wittgenstein and, and convert them to neon tubes, then probably the museum is the best place for that. And then if you have a more goofy idea, then you need another avenue. Yeah, or if you want to be critical of those ideas. Because um, in my experience, like early on wanting to be critical of art institutional context now don't get me wrong there is a certain type of gallery that wants that only wants to do that so you know you could but i did see the internet as a critique um like a a critical space from day one i don't know if you did too but i think with your manifestos you sort of did right like the artist contract stuff you it immediately repositioned your work as antithetical to the museum it it, it was more and I think the audience question is interesting because when you make the work, I don't think you think, oh, I'm going to make this to please this group or that group. doesn't start I don't know. that way. Do you, do you start that way where you're thinking like, oh, I think there's a lot of 20-year-olds that are into <laughs> this type of music, so I'll make that type of art or something like that. that. Never, nothing ever starts that way. All no. I'm saying is it evolves into no, something. No, no. But what yeah. I, I was very aware of, what seemed to me, is that the art world is based on older people. So there's like people on the boards of museums or art critics and, you know, they're 40 years or older, probably older, especially collectors, they're older. And I thought it's strange when you're 18 that you have to make work that's judged by people one or two generations away from you. Mm -hmm. So that's something I always found very unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, And now that I'm a bit older, it's fine. The gap is not as crazy, but... When you're 18 and a 56-year-old is like, I don't understand your work. It's like, yeah, well, I'm a lot younger than you and I have different interests and I grew up in a different time and uh, it's supposed to be illegible to you. If if it wasn't illegible to someone three times your age, you're probably not doing something Mm. new. But did the YBAs feel that way? Like they're coming straight out of school? Yeah, well, that's that's a good question because I I think there's 18-year-olds that just can't relate to the formal art world and they are more comfortable on deviant art or other places and there's 18 year olds that are very comfortable with the art world yeah just for our listeners who might not be aware i'm referring to the young british artists people like damien hurst and tracy emin that you know came out in the late 90s to out right out of school and into immediate fame um, yeah but even they i think supposedly attracted a new breed of collectors mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting I was going to say, like, you know, early on, did you not, who did you find as, did you have an audience or did you assume no, there but was an audience? It, 
here's the way it worked for me. I, I was just trying all kinds of things in school and then maybe Xeroxing them and hanging them uh, in, the, in the school and, and sharing it within the context of the school, mm-hmm. like making posters or things like that. And then I just started putting things online and they were very shareable and then it, the audience would find it. I wasn't actively sending it to people, but it just mm-hmm. started spreading. And so... I think the internet is everything. It's not a it's not a certain subset of at, at the time maybe it was mm-hmm. all the all the all the the user base was quite small but the user base just kept growing. Mm-hmm. But you can't say oh there's only one group on the internet it's really for everyone. I, I think you're saying I, something I th- I think that I experienced maybe, as well, which was maybe like what I'm saying is kind of. yeah, but what I'm saying is if you place something in a gallery it's a specialized audience. Mm-hmm. There's not many people go to that gallery, and if they do, they are interested in art. Mm-hmm. And if you show, show something in public space, as I see the internet the same as public space, you have no control over who sees it or under what circumstances. People pass by, and they either stop or they don't. And that, that, that instance that uh, Victor is describing in the question of a child looking at his work, I guess... Mm-hmm. That's what I'm talking about. Like you have no control, but it can be quite moving when you see mm-hmm. someone being grabbed by your work. Yeah, that's very interesting. He he mentioned that because I had in you know, one of my favorite experiences in in terms of exhibition was similar. Like at a show at um, uh, the Albright Knox when I first came out of school. Like I did better when I first got out of school than I've done in the <laughs> 15 years since. But like uh, there were all all these kids like decided that the room that I had decorated and I had videos up and was like, that was going to be where they were going to hang out and dance the whole opening. And I think that at the crux of this, like that being a a highlight moment, I have to acknowledge something I think Victor's getting at, which is like, if there is that kind of, that child had no, you know, there's no like, um, they have no academic reference. They have no, they have no um, gatekeeper, Acknowledgement. They're not like, wow, this is a powerful museum. This has got to be good, right? So, yeah. Um, but it's also the exception. So if, if you make art for a mature audience and then all of a sudden a child sees it, you think it's awesome. But if you always make stuff for kids, then it might be refreshing when an older person looks at it and says, oh, I've, I saw a lot in your work that reminded me of X, Y, and Z, and it's interesting. And Yeah. You know, if, if you're a children's author and all of a sudden someone 80 years old reads your book and is impressed and uh, yeah mm-hmm. i never had a problem with older people um uh, getting my work but, <laughs> but then again like that should I, be a t-shirt you had a problem with older people. <laughs> but i think that it's interesting that like maybe it's a european versus american because i was doing stuff in the u.s and there's a long history of like you know american artists like william wegman or um you know different different folks who were playing with comedy as a factor of their art making yeah, I, keep, yeah. I, I was thinking of Mike. What's his face uh, that did the baby performances? Um, God, he auditioned for SNL. Uh, I got to remember this reference by the end of the podcast. I'll remember, but um, you know, so there's but there are, there are people that were working with comedy in art making. Even Cindy Sherman to this day, right, is a, is a good example actually. And so, if you could make someone laugh. I always felt like that was acknowledged as real art, at least in an American context. In Canada, less so, by the way. Like, so maybe Canada's closer to Europe in that context. Um, but yeah, I don't know where I'm going except to say, like, popular, you know, I, I'm getting from you, like, comedy or artwork that's fun has this, like, populism 
And that immediately puts it in the realm of like not serious because it's literally not serious and therefore less valuable. Well, it, it's um, where do you feel at home? I think that's Me the personally? question. Yeah, as an artist, like anyone, like. Well, I, I feel most popular. Uh, most, yeah, I feel most <laughs> popular. I feel, definitely feel most at home with populism. I mean, I, I make fun of it in my work, but I also think that um, the idea, first of all, the first audiences that I found were not in art because I started as a designer. And my first audiences were other, you know, people designing software interfaces. That's where I started. And so there was an admiration of the craft, which, uh, like, was cool. Like, and it felt like people were feeding off of each other's work. Kind of demo scene uh, is probably the reference I would maybe use in, in an art audience, where people were just showing off what they could do. And that, that's a really aesthetic experience. And when you're young and you're learning your craft, it's very exciting because it's like a Pac-Man you know, leaderboard or a Street Fighter leaderboard. And like you can work your way up it. Right. And it's very clear what the rules are. Um, and it's not for fans. It's for mutual admiration among other craftspeople. Um, and I'm not using that term craftsperson disparagingly, I hope, but like the, it's, it was hundred percent about the craft and originality. But, so you're saying was, your peers are your audience, not so much the users. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's how it was for me for the first, like, cause I started doing that when I was a teenager, but my, for my first, like probably even few years as an artist, it was about at, mutual admiration among art peers or craft peers. Yeah. And I, I think I've always just wanted the work to be available as broadly as possible. So I don't think I worried about the exact audience, but I just like the idea that if people want to see it, they can see it. Yeah. It seems it seems really obvious, but that's not how most visual art is distributed. But you should we should mention you were part of these things like called surf clubs. And so you were creating platforms for yourself to be more visible. To a, to a broader group of people, or, or were you, or what was that all about? Well, this, the, the surf clubs really came much later. So they were maybe 2010, and I started in 2000. So I don't wow. think they were so formative yeah. in, in my approach. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. Because even Neen, though, was like a, you, you got together with other artists. Yeah, yeah, and we did group shows, but we didn't have a surf club or anything. In, mm. I, but... To me, the question of audience is interesting from the point of view of how you read a work. So that's maybe a question that when you make a work as an artist, how do you want it to be seen? Mm -hmm. And that's, for example, I always think of the artist Hito Stell and that she makes works that are critical of capitalism and I assume she wants a lot of people to see it and I assume she thinks people who don't have a lot of money shouldn't have to pay to see her work. Mm -hmm. But in reality, she also wants the work to be seen in, quote-unquote, the right context, because that's how you legitimize the work, that's how you add cachet and historical importance. So she doesn't just make work for YouTube. Mm -hmm. But it's this contradiction where if you are someone who is involved in class struggle and reaching as many people as possible to educate them and show them the hardship and that there are opportunities for improvement and that we should uh, find camaraderie amongst larger groups because the only way you can have leverage over the ruling class is by bonding together. 
and then if you then show your work in a very narrow distribution because you want the work to have critical power, then you let go of the populism uh, potential. Mm. So and, and anyone who is making art that is about class struggle or some kind of economic disparity that is not distributing it for free seems contradictory to me. Well, I mean, my one encounter with Hirostero in person was contradictory. Yeah. Um, and and not like, just her, but any, any artist who's yeah. interested in class struggle. No, but I bring. I think she's interesting because, you know, she does occupy pretentious territory potentially, right? But she has that air in person of like, um, like th- for example, there's like there are people that um, that are are willing are, like do not place hierarchy between themselves and their fans or their their audience. And then there are people that, you know, very clearly delineate, delineate, like you are the fans and I am the creator and like, and you know, yeah, but there's there's a big difference to me between uh, the distribution of Justin Bieber and, and Hito Stel. You know, there's, it's clear that if you're Justin Bieber or any pop star, you want to reach as many people as possible. You want to make acquiring your work as easy as possible. Mm Mm-hmm. You're not going to build barriers. You're not going to build... Yeah, you're going to lower the friction. Yeah. To use like software language. Yeah, yeah, but that's interesting. Like a friend of ours uh, works at a big software company, but also makes NFTs. And he's like, it's so weird because in my day job, all we're trying to do is make shopping easier. Yeah. And then when you go to a gallery, all they do is try to make shopping harder. So Yeah. And then NFTs are this weird... Uh, mix of audiences where the price is high but the distribution is free so anyone can see the work and anyone can participate and it's the friction it's frictionless all that stuff um what i'm trying to say is the art world is is built on exclusivity while the the thematics of the art world are, are about inclusivity mm-hmm. so that the topic of the work is inclusivity but the distribution is based on exclusivity yeah but then you have people like me that come along or like they do institutional critique, which then only is even worse. Cause like now on top of that, you have to first of all understand that equation that you just presented. And then artists are, are making work about that imbalance. Um, and I think it's there's comp what I'm saying is there's compound accessibility problems, like there's compound exclusivity, um, to the point where I don't know, I did I started my career very much with a desire to, like I would, I, I'll, I'll tell this, the story, which, which I've told on the podcast before is like to not be in the dark room at the back of the gallery. I wanted to be among the painters in the front gallery. <laughs> like don't put me in the black box at the back of the gallery. Right. Cause no, and no one wants to be in there and it's dark and scary and not social, you know? And I think the internet can feel that way, but it, but it didn't actually uh, for me, because I know that people have said, like, well, net art seems, like, unfriendly. But I had a, a different experience among, like, meeting you and meeting other internet artists and, and what I said about peer audience. It did seem like everyone was both making and consuming and building mm. on each other's ideas. And that well, created Well, it's, it's very scene. easy to see each other's work, that's for sure. That's, like, yeah. the removing friction aspect where, oh, yeah, I saw your page. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you, yeah, so, like, take, for example, like, Glitch, you know, where you had people 
that were building up a new aesthetic form right before our eyes and talking about it every day. I guess, you know, historically this would be similar to like a Parisian cafe where like, you know, Cezanne and Renoir or something like sit down together. Right. And, um, and if I just got two time periods mixed up, like, forgive me, (laughs) but like, you know, and then they invite, Picasso over and like Van Gogh and now like all the time periods are there together. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, but, and, uh, and Cleopatra was there too. Yeah, Cleopatra. <laughs> yeah, then Jeff Koons shows up. Yeah. But all I'm saying is like you know there are there, those moments used to be reserved for cliques of or tiny groups of like like little gangs in specific localized. cities. Localized, yeah. yeah. The internet allowed, at least for me, to feel like, and I know we've talked about this in other versions of the podcast, like on the cities topic, but allowed me to feel like I had access to that Parisian cafe, but like on yeah. a global scale. And I felt that from a very young age. And I think your your point about distribution, can't we can't lose that. Yeah. And then it wasn't well, about the platform so much as like, it, that was just like the tools of the internet were these platforms to start. Like Facebook was a way that I connected with other artists. Well, another example is the in the podcast where Jordan Wolfson and the people are talking to each other. Yeah. Jordan Wolfson is a big fan of, um, what's the name of the painter? Um, he's from Luxembourg. It has a big painting behind him that is a big painting of Buzz Lightyear. And Beeple also uses Buzz Lightyear in his compositions. So it was a funny coincidence where Jordan is critiquing uh, Beeple's work that the meaning is too <laughs> obvious. Yeah. And then behind him is a monochrome painting. It's just completely blue with a sticker of Buzz Lightyear on top. Was it Wilm de Voy or something? Who was no, it? No, 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 no. It's uh, Mich- Michel Majerus. Oh, right, right, right. And, and um, Michel Majerus is from Luxembourg. He died too young, and he was kind of a neo-pop artist that yeah. embraced gaming culture and 3D and Super Mario mm-hmm. and made all these very fast hyper paintings with crazy colors. Both are using Buzz Lightyear as a subject, both people and Michel Majerus. Just by coincidence... Jordan Wolfson is sitting there and one of those paintings is behind him. So it was a funny coincidence in that moment of the interview. It wasn't planned. And then they're critiquing Beeple's take on Buzz Lightyear and Michelle Majerus's take. But then when you know Jordan Wolfson comes from a wealthy family, is comfortable with money, then made money mm-hmm. with the wealthiest gallery in the world, so he's able to have a painting. And that painting probably cost one or two million or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not cheap. It's it's uh, highly ranked. And then he says, well, if I look at your uh, Instagram image, your digital art, I, I don't feel anything because it's so small, blah, blah, blah. And this painting, you can feel all the gestures of the artist and the your body is involved because it's quite large. But there's also such an exclusion of audience just because it's a unique object. Mm-hmm. So I, I think as a painter, you can always dream of having a broader distribution, but if you only make 12 paintings a year that are mostly held by people in their homes, the viewing experience is limited to those 12 people. And, and that's something that from the start, I was part of, I think your choice of medium also defines your audience. That's maybe what I'm trying to get. It's so hard for me not to think about it uh, through the economic lens of, but also from a business lens. So maybe to put it simply, like imagine music was, made in unique objects and only one person could listen to Michael Jackson and only one person could listen to Madonna. 
Well, prior to the invention of like the recording, that yeah, you know, it would be that way. It would be about access to that living human being, yeah, in person. I mean, I, I was also thinking in software, we have this distinction between enterprise software, which is very customized software made for very specific, sometimes one person. Like, so you'll and and whole, often very. And unpolished. when I say person, I mean one company. Yeah. Well, very always, yeah very yeah very often it's requirements based. It's best to think of it almost like a in a factory, you know, like say Tesla orders a machine that makes batteries, you order a piece of software that makes, you know, X, Y, Z, um, I don't know, yeah. payroll or something. Yeah. But what I always he- heard about enterprise software, or maybe that's where you, what you're getting at is that at some point, uh, consumer software got so good that people at companies started using their own devices because well, this is it. The, this yeah. is the argument. This is the argument I want to make, which is like the goal f- for the last 30 years or 40 years of software, and Apple was the first to do this, they take the mainframe and they made the personal computer, right? So, the, but the history of software since then has been, let's take the enterprise and bring enterprise down to the consumer. And that's going to be so that any consumer now can run a business that would have cost, you know, millions of dollars to run, um, you know, on enterprise uh, equipment and software. You could argue like Ikea did that for furniture, right? They're like, let's take the high modernism, let's make it available at a price point and a distri- with a distribution network that anyone can afford. I'd argue that Ikea like went a little too far on the quality side of things, but um, it's the same economic argument, which is, and I think it exists in the art world too. And scarcity is often stated as a value system rather than as a distribution um, an efficiency uh, program. So like you and I have argued about this a ton, but like if if a thousand people have access to something at a price, if the volume is great enough in business that you can create a margin, it shouldn't make a difference to you whether you sell a thousand or you sell one, as long as like if you make the same amount of money, right? But I would argue in art, like at volume, you're, the scale of impact of that message to your point about accessibility could potentially be enormous and, and and really exciting. That's that's the Yoko Ono John Lennon argument. I'm in the Yoko Ono John Lennon camp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But especially more John Lennon than Yoko Ono. Like she had an idea and John was like, well, let's share it with the world, not just twelve people in a gallery. Well, you know, people are really critical of memes, right? For being like of low cultural value. Like in the art world. Well this is I think this is the heart of the discussion that is always there's always the fear that if you broaden the audience, that the message has to be dumbed down. Mm-hmm. No, it's because, the opposite. Yeah, but but I think in general, if you ask any artist, do you want 10 people to see this painting or whatever your work is, or a million? Yeah. Anyone would choose the million, or it's, as far as I know. It's like, sure, they want to see it, but what do you have to do to do that? Well, to here's get the hot that, take. Yeah. Here's the hot take. William Wegman made videos about dogs, right? And they're they're critical of capitalism somehow, like somehow he pulled it off, right? In the 1970s, they were accepted in in, in the narrow art world. Yeah, they they were accepted at museums and galleries. They're still part of art history canon. So he takes that same idea. He's like, well, you know, what People if I love made dogs? Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> what if I uh, made them a little bit more widely available? And then a little bit more wide, widely still, like until the point that, you know, you can send a greeting card, you know, with this dog. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same idea. It's the same, same intent. Same, same idea, same intent. Um, 
but the distribution uh, eventually I'm, I'm speaking from the snobby art world side of things dilute, diluted the concept to the point it where changes. people la- well, laugh yeah. at him yeah. yeah and it you could say that in the extreme example of uh, either performance art or painting where the audience feels very close to the personal gesture it's not mediated it's quite it's quite direct so mm-hmm. if you can witness a performance see something happening at the right time it's a very pure moment and it's not you don't see it recorded and edited and changed and all these things and so the, i think the fear of the wider distribution is that when you compare it to food like oh you find this restaurant that's great and only 10 people know about it and then the restaurant franchises and then they, you know, they can't get the same ingredients around the world, so they have to standardize the ingredients and maybe add some chemicals to keep the flavor the same around the world and whatever, and you lose the quality. So I think that's the fear with the wider distribution. I hear what you're saying. It's the kind of the IKEA argument that I, I kind of tripped over earlier, which is like the modernist, there was something conceptually relevant, a, a tie-in between material, like form and function and concept were all... Well, also a tie-in accepting uh, industrial technologies and making the most out of them and don't use industrial processes to emulate uh, craft, like handmade stuff. Which Ikea sometimes does, right? So they kind of slip yeah. conceptually. But the, but I think the idea of the Bauhaus was like, well, let's embrace technology and not try to make it look like an, a century ago on a new machine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's not try and mimic, um, yeah, Rococo on <laughs> these yeah. like industrial machines. Um, yeah, so I, I, yeah, I think that sometimes if we think about the, probably the economic forces, they modify the meaning of the work to the extent that you can no longer ignore that impact. And at that point, maybe you've. It's not just. You know, did you ever see that Richard Serapis television delivers people? Yeah, it's like it's the the text that passes by. Yeah, and it just talks about how, really, at the end of the day, you are the product of television, right? Because advertising um, is what pays for it, and so your eyeballs are what productize television. Similarly to the you know the way Google functions, right? You're the product of Google, and so I think like that tension is is hard to uh hard to deny or ignore when you get into high volume which is like at what point is um the audience in on it um to the extent that there is um a fair exchange of value or value is um attention and understanding you know meaning if you will to use like a, a cheesier word but like, I get what they're trying to... Like, I understand what this artist is trying to do. This under, artist understands what I'm trying to receive. Um, I don't know. Am I speaking too abstractly right now? No, no. But I I, I think... Um, as far as I know, some artists are very precise in their audience. And they say, well, there's these three critics that I, I'm really in conversation with because they are thinking about the same... Uh, streams of thought as me at the same intensity level and that's why I made these works for them to see and that's who I want to reach and and maybe similar if you're in science and you're at a certain specialization you can't expect the general audience to follow what you do maybe years later you can do a popular science version I think you're getting to a good point yeah Yeah. but and then some artists you know like cause or anyone like that they're like well 
this is what I'm interested in, and a lot of people are into it. And so I'm going to do my best that I communicate to a large audience. So I'll use social media or collaborate with brands because that's the way to reach all those people that I can see that they're hungry for this, and I want them to see it, and it brings joy to their life, and uh, maybe it inspires them to start their own thing. And so for a lot of artists, like positive energy multiplied or intensified, the larger audience, the better. And but so the, the, if, yeah. if, if you ask some artists, like, would you show your work at Coachella in, in the background of a pop artist? And they're like, no, that's tacky. And some other, other artists is like, yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the th- points you just made that's probably worth just spending a little bit more time on is like now versus later, like now versus the future. Yeah. And this idea that you are you creating the work for now and for the audience you have today, or are you creating it for an audience of the future? <laughs> but the, 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 way, yeah. the way it happened with me, and my, I, I don't feel like I'm in control of what I make. Mm-hmm. So this idea, like, am I making something for now or for years later? I don't know. Like, oh, but you just made the best point ever because what I know about you is you might you're going to make the work for yourself, whether or not someone likes yeah. it. Yeah. But in that world, you know, you can't predict the audience. You're just predicting that what you're sensing is no, relatable. No, but it, but I think a, a lot of a big point. reason why a lot of people listen to this podcast is to get some hints how to get ahead and become a full-time artist. Well, we've got none of that. Yeah. <laughs> but I think as you start out, a lot of it is about opportunities and saying yes or no. Mm-hmm. And the audience is based a lot on friendships. So if you're friends with the right people, you're in on a group show or you're not. Of course, yeah. yeah. That kind of thing. And that determines your audience too. So, Actually, it doesn't usually work that way. It'll be like, would you like to... Yeah, do you want to be a part of this? Or yeah, if you but send I've, me a I've proposal, seen, I'll I've say I've seen yes. artists who, from the beginning, have that mindset of like, no, I mm-hmm. only want to show in the best spaces and the best thing. And for me, it was more, well, the work stands on that. its own, and I'll show it anyway. Like yeah. any, any human being is worthy of seeing this. I don't think one human being is better than the other one, so why well, should yeah. I... Li- yeah, I highly relate to that. Like the first way I showed yeah, art but, was but, in restaurants. But you know, the, you, you've met artists through your career or maybe in school that were just like, no, I, I'm not interested in that. Uh, like, I only want to show in places I feel completely comfortable. Yeah, and a bunch of those people, I hate them. <laughs> no, and, and, but it, I don't hate them for it at all. Like, I think that's a valid approach. And like, I guess it's so. the same I found way. It, I found it, it annoying. At some but point it's, it's a luxury brand strategy. Like, you don't sell yeah. Hermes at Walmart. Sure. It's a good strategy, but it just yeah. didn't resonate with me because I was like, really excited about the work and sharing it with people. I, well, I to me I to me all audience is stupid. Like it's not that I think everyone in the world is great. But mm. to me, like art world people are just as stupid as Walmart people. Like everybody's stupid. So for I, me know. then to distinguish like, oh I can't show here or there because I think everywhere there's a potential of, of interesting people and stupid. I just people. didn't have that but, belief at all. Call me naive, yeah. but like I had the reverse experience and feeling, which was like and maybe it's because I was showing in video festivals and, and making video art. But like, if I could get the room, like, and by the way, back when I was making video, you would do festivals and stuff and they'd sell out. And I remember the first festival that I got into that I was excited about was one that happened like every month. It was like a season all year long, kind of like we're going to show stuff every programs every every month. And I think even sometimes weekly. And they had this 
one uh, thing called the New Toronto Works Show, which was a once a year thing. All the new work in Toronto. So it's like the Whitney Biennial for Toronto-based yeah. artists. And I got into it, and it was rammed. And I have to say, like, it's still among it. Like, people were laughing at the work. They love, you know, there was just energy in the room. And I just felt like, wow, how there's so many people, and I that that are willing to accept this as worthy of their time, that they're willing to even stand. Yeah, how is that not a positive? Yeah, how is that not? not this is amazing. If I can no, do no, this the, the rest of the, my the, life, the, you know, the, this was exactly like when I say everyone is stupid. What I'm trying to say is, a lot of people think like the best place to show your work is MoMA, but yeah. actually, it's not that good of a viewing experience. The the rooms are quite small compared to the amount of audience. Yeah. And there's a lot of regional museums that where you can have a lot more focus seeing the work. And so that I think this sort of limited thinking of I only want to show in the right places, you lose a lot of great opportunities. Like you're saying, like at a music festival or a film festival or in a university setting or in a mall or yeah. whatever. But But all that being said, it's also survival. Like if you want to show work, at a certain scale and a certain level, then you have to play by certain rules. It's like maybe maybe a good analogy and back to Jordan Wolfson and and Beeple is they're playing different video games and like one video game is like hide from the crowd but find the only the one person you're supposed to talk to and get a big bag of money <laughs> and the other video game is like walk through the crowd, give your business card to everyone in the audience show them all your work, and at the end you might get some money, but first build the... It's more of the software approach. Like, yeah. don't, don't worry about profit. First just find the I audience. I think it's closer to the musicians. Uh, and I, I felt like a musician early in my career, yeah. I have to say. Well, and even you're my, touring, so it, yeah, it's my similar to musicians. Yeah, my musicians. I went on tour. I hosted people, video artists on tour. And I, I don't know. So it was, it was always about building a following. It was always about connecting with other people that were trying to do the same thing. And the contemporary art world seemed like this thing that could happen, but it was, it, it didn't matter because I was, but, but have anyway. you, have you had through the years, have you had teachers or curators who said, Jeremy, you should only show in the right spaces. You should only talk to the right people. You're wasting your time with this audience. I had, I did have that. A, a few, a have few you occasions. had occasions where people sat you down and be like, Jeremy, you have so much potential, but you should only talk to the right people. A, a little bit, but I think I was lucky to actually have more, because of the video art thing, more of the yeah. opposite, which were like... Well, video you, art started you, as, a, as a reaction of making work that's less commercial and more distributed yeah, through cable TV. It was TV. supposed to be outside of the... Yeah, exactly. Cable access was actually one of the major political threads of video art for a long time, and access to media. What I'm saying is... At the moment of video art, that's when art not only became uh, immaterial, because performance was also immaterial, but also became recorded and wave-based, like, like yeah. energy-based instead of matter-based, and that, therefore it can be transmitted. Yeah, it was always about distribution. The, I mean, the only And I guess time music that... was the first to become a distributed medium. Well, yeah. Music was not distributed before it was... I mean, this is all standard media theory, I guess. But I think video art did break a boundary where all of a sudden there was no exclusive. There was no. You didn't lose anything by sending a copy to the local community center or to a bar, but also showing it in a museum. 
Like if you take an expensive painting, a historical work, and place it in the mall where people might spill their soda on on the work, <laughs> it's a risk. But screening a video is different. You're always so disparaging towards our American. <laughs> well, you know, people burger, get a little crazy uh, in the wall. The ketchup the gets mall. smeared all over the work. Yeah, yeah but I think like um, that was up until a certain point, and uh, up until around. 2010, that that dateline you mentioned for like surf clubs in video art, the video art fairs started because it was like the art fair craze. And well, that I came rem- out of the tradition of film festivals. No, it was like suddenly an antithesis. There was this race to commodify video art because people are like, oh my, oh my god, like maybe video is the next photography. If you, I mean, it sounds so laugh out loud to say that. <laughs> This one, um, and so no, we're gonna I, like, I don't. I don't think there's anything bad about thinking about it. Well, I, it was it was like an economic crisis for video artists because enough people were making it, and Matthew Barney was proving that you could sell it, and so was Ryan Tricarton. and so you know, like, hey, maybe we've been doing this wrong, you know. For, and that, we're at that inflection point with NFTs right now, so it's not unfamiliar to me this idea that like, oh, we've been undervaluing all of this culture. But it wasn't undervalued from a fan attention standpoint. The, when, and what killed, what, what caused the crisis was the internet, ironically, a distribution means that destroyed film festivals. So most people don't know, you know, the United States and Europe were populated by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of fringe film and video festivals. It was like nothing you'd ever seen before. We will never see it again. And they were like those standing room only moments that I just described because no one had ever seen media like the artists were creating. Imagine the, you know, like and none of this stuff was on the internet. So imagine, yeah. imagine and tomorrow I, I said, there's an, ev- yeah, yeah. You'd, ne- you'd never been on the internet. And tomorrow I'm like, Hey, there's an event. There's this, in all of the media of the internet, like the ideas of the internet are going to be there in this, but I only for an hour. I saw in the beginning of the internet, people would organize festivals to look at selected YouTube uh, showings. Yeah. And, and there's something about the communal viewing, even if you've seen the work, it's, I was thinking, I, I watched Mulholland Drive in the theater. They were running it again later. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot funnier in the theater than when you watch it at home by yourself. Oh, it, yeah. it was it was like at home it's a sort of horror thriller and in the theater it's a comedy. Mm-hmm. So I do think there's something about that communal experience and the same with music that you when you experience music at a concert that might have a completely different impact than under well, the shower. No doubt. And like Victor's a painter, right? So let's talk about that for a second. What happened <laughs> to painting? Right. Let's break it down for Victor. Well, no, I mean, Victor's already broken it down, which is like, yeah. you're probably posting your paintings on Instagram, right, for a certain fan base to like. And and then he's talking about the best experience was in person with a little girl, right? Um, painting kind of took this di- internet distribution right turn as well. And I think has gone through a similar crisis of reevaluating its value. And we had zombie formalism for a period of time, which was like the ultimate critique in that space, which was like, oh, okay, like all of human history and imagery is available. I'm going to algorithmically pull forward the aesthetics that are most likely to sell as a factor of, you know, critiquing the value system within painting. Um, but then that, 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 like, um, that fuse burnt out so quickly mm. that, you know, I think as a video artist, I can identify with that search for like, what is the right balance? And I think we're seeing it with NFTs right now again, which is like, 
it, you know, is my work valuable? Is there an audience for my work? It's not just one or the other, right? It's actually the confluence of all of these yeah, things. Yeah, but that's that's an interesting question because the the collector base of NFTs is much smaller than the audience. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's it's the and and I that, think that that's quite it, I think that's quite different. The classical art world that we think of, like with Castelli Gallery in New York doing minimal art or abstract expressionism or pop art and like one gallery had all the coolest artists and there were maybe six galleries and there was just not that big of an audience mm-hmm. not that many people cared and yeah. I think the audience of art even fine fine art is so much bigger than it ever was so now if you go to Storm King it's full of minimalist yeah. and post-minimalist sculptures that I'm sure when it started out, it was only for enthusiasts, like the yeah. donors and their family. Or like and a now great example. Would, yeah, now there's, like, there's all these sculptures that are geotagged on, on Instagram, yeah. and peop- there's a line of people like, I want to take a picture in front of the mirror fence. Yeah, I can remember reading like, an article about... What, what I'm like, trying to say is yeah. it became pop even without the intention. No, no, I love what you're saying, because I can remember reading an article like in... Uh, like some journal about like uncovering a Smithson's spiral jetty, right? Like famous work that like of rocks in a, you know, spiral in the middle of a, a lake, but that got covered by water and soot and like disappeared. But then like it reappeared and like the journey to go discover this work. But it was like, someone was telling you a story of like visiting a deep, dark jungle <laughs> and bringing like a, a Mayan artifact out, right? Like it was very much a one to one relationship yeah. only a few people in the world even knew where this thing was i had to go talk to so-and-so um very much almost like a like a underground music kind of scene if i'm and, honest and, with you and one of the things that's that's going on now is before the the gatekeepers and tastemakers of the art world were very top down so there was a few critics and a few galleries and curators and they protected what is art and then it takes slow steps expanding what is art. So every now and then someone can break a few rules, but not too many, and say, okay, that's a little crazy, but I guess we can accept neons as art. Yeah. And then the next step is like, okay, I guess we can have nudity in sculptures, but let's not go too crazy. And, oh, there's a lot of mutilation in this video. It's okay. <laughs> Take it easy. And now all of a sudden it's just anything goes, whatever the... F- the collectors like, and no one is guiding the collectors. And as you mentioned, zombie formalism, all the critics said, oh, no, no, don't don't waste your time on that. That's kitsch. That's done before. That's not historically relevant. And people bought it anyways. Yeah, but the reason I said that the fuse was short is they bought it for a brief period of time and then got yeah. bored of it and moved on, you know? Yeah. But, <clears throat> I mean, I'm not saying that there, is, there are still some of those aesthetics out there, but things have generally moved on, right? Um. Yeah, I think that... But the it, role of, of the critic, I don't think they have a lot of influence anymore on exhibition making or art making. I don't think a lot of artists mm. are thinking, oh, I have to relate to this critic for my work. Well, first of all, the exhibition, it's the, the concept of an exhibition is potentially, in the era of the internet, obsolete, has been yeah. well, in it's definitely for like 20 years. Yeah, but the last year definitely our relation to exhibitions has changed. Yeah, yeah. But like, I've often... But, but the, the art fair, for example, is already a very compromised exhibition. Everyone knows it's not the ideal viewing space. It's too crowded. The, the yeah. works are too close together. But it's convenient. And it seems that 
convenience, as we know from software, is, is very powerful. An art fair is GeoCities in the physical world. Like, it, like <laughs> full, yeah. full stop. You can put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> it's dead. It's over. No, like, but that, that's Vista, that's one lost. of those. That's the, one of those things. All the arguments against NFT, where people say. Oh, but you don't control the context, so your work might be shown next to something really bad. Blah, that blah, sounds blah. like Google. It sounds like yeah, Google. But it's also the same way that you can't critique Instagram. You can't say Instagram is a bad context. It's it's the world. I was reading a book. When someone says, oh, I don't like NFTs, there's a lot of bad ones. It's like, well, go to the internet. There's a lot of bad web pages. doesn't mean... There's no okay. good web pages. I'm going to lay this straight. Like, I'm going to lay this straight. Because this is just a direct consumer economic revolution. Like, and it th- this is just the last like any industry. Other. Yeah. And I, like, I was reading a book on the plane down here called The Fe- the the Customer of the Future. Sounds like I wrote the book. But, like, it was all about, you know, quote, unquote, digital transformation. If you work in the arts, and some of our listeners do, those words probably made you cringe. But the whole concept was a lot of the physical world, retail world primarily to start, had no such thing as like a digital um, experience for their customer, right? Like you'd go into the store, you know, you might buy something, you try and return it to another store. They're like, well, that was the other store's problem. And you're like, but I saw it on the website. Like we don't do the website. Like everything was siloed, right? And the process of digital transformation has been one of like hybridizing the experiences between our physical and online or digital experiences into one like horizontal experience straight up, right? And the major- And and it's always- the goal is to make buying stuff easier. Yeah, like the best example is a Casper mattress. Think about what it was like to buy a Casper mattress. <laughs> like, sorry, any mattress like 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a horrible experience. It was a cringy like, experience, someone trying to sell you stuff. Yeah, it sounds like a fucking gallery. Like, <laughs> No, but, but it, it, I just saw someone tweeting, uh, there's a fashion designer from the Netherlands called Iris van Herpen. Yeah. And she makes these... 3D printed or technologically based dresses, and they're too complicated to mass produce. And they work quite well on social media because they're spectacular. They're like incredibly imaginative, innovative dresses. But mm-hmm. you're not gonna take them on a on a trip because you're gonna break it. Yeah. The point is, is someone tweeted like, "Where would I even go to buy one of these?" And they're exclusive because they're complicated. So. They're probably mostly sold to institutions, and maybe a few rich people can wear them for an event. But It's a commission. It's a commission, yeah. but overall, that's an example where the distribution has to be limited because the production is so complicated. So it's, it's not always broader is better. And I, I think a lot of people who start startups with the idea of democratizing art... Yeah. It's kind of a contradiction because democratic art already exists in the form of popular culture. Oh, exactly. So then once you start to broaden and broaden the audience, and you're like, well, the audience likes art that looks like video games, so let's present, let's give them the option to buy art that looks like video games. And then at some point you're like, well, they're already buying video games, and those are way more elaborate than these video game-inspired artworks, so why would? what's the role of art then once you... Once you broaden it to the point where it is exactly like popular culture, except it's it's not as cool as popular culture. Yeah, you're getting at one of my favorite points, which is the art world is the only world where the customer is always wrong, <laughs> like the only yeah. the only business. But I think that that's the premise. Like, unfortunately, it's challenged the audience. 
Yeah, unfortunately, it has, art starts with the premise that the audience is always wrong. And, and does that make it undisruptable? But it's, I think if you reformulate that statement and you say the artist doesn't, the, the audience never knows why it's wrong until like it spends more time. <laughs> it's like, that's no, a I, I understand. The, the, yeah. the audience cannot come up with the next big idea because otherwise they would be making it. So yeah. if, if the person who is making the next big idea is, is surprising, that can yeah. also come from consumer world. They, someone can also make the next crazy video game that no one imagined and, and changes everything. Yeah, we're so in kind I think, of faster horse territory, though, right? Which is like... No, but what, what I'm trying to say is that popular culture world is very creative and come up can come up with new movie genres, new music genres, etc. And then art has always prided itself on making very narrow, niche, nerdy, extreme detail the most things niche. that... And, and also things that last centuries... Not just physically that, that they don't deteriorate, but also mentally that there's something about the work that stays interesting. You know how a lot of comedies don't age well, and if, if you see it 20 years later, it's not that's as funny. I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And it's so, not made for today. Yeah, but the idea or the dream of, of high culture is that it transcends time, and that something that was made 2,000 years ago is still relevant and still interesting, etc., so that's the argument against democratization. But I think this is why you need old people to like your work, because what you want is someone who can see back 50 years and forward 50 years. You know, I love the child point of view that like the child doesn't need to know anything. I think both are, are equally relevant. But I also love that it all like as I've gotten older, like a lot of works have felt as you've more gotten power. crankier. No, but some sometimes like art that I would have taken for granted, I would have spent like five seconds on it. I, I'm now willing to spend like an hour with it or yeah. something, you know? Yeah. What's changed? Well, my perspective has changed a little bit in terms of the accumulated experience and my perspective on life and And you your know, flow meaning. of time is different than someone. Flow of time, yeah. Yeah. And that's why like the customer is always wrong is not necessarily a bad statement. It's like it's a and challenging an audience. I used to when I was younger, I was really critical of that. I was like, yeah, everyone should just get it all in one frame. But over time, I've come to like realize that I think that it would be way better if it was more like an advent calendar. And every day you could open like a you get a little more chocolate, you know, <laughs> like, mm. and that's like a really when, especially when it's a single image, a really beautiful thing, um, and very hard to do well. Like it's just a, it's a craft to do that well. And, and, and um, I I think that the we've been brought up with art history and it always presented is that there are these universal rules how to judge a work. Mm -hmm. There are formal aspects, there are political aspects, and there are narrative aspects, and you can break them all down and then say. Is this work historically relevant? What did this work mean in its time? And and we sort of see like, okay, they, they made this step. They went from no perspective, then they invented perspective, and then they introduced the saints, and then they humanized them, and it's this linear thing. And I think in the last 30 years, we've seen the blending of art and entertainment, and, and we keep trying to want to analyze it within the old framework of 2,000 years of art history. Mm -hmm. And I think it's taking on such a different form that more and more the, the guidelines by which we view works and how we were taught to see and how we were taught to look at things 
it's getting more and more removed and alien. I, I'm talking about my art oh, history yeah. classes in in '95. Yeah. It was easy. How they how they would teach us how to look at a work. It just doesn't apply when a work is not a single frame, but is something that evolves in posts on social media over the course of many years, and at the same time is evolved with events and is evolved with other people sharing the work and it's this organic living thing and you can't compare that to uh you know a pyramid it's just it's, yeah, no, it's a agree. different thing uh, to contradict my earlier statement though like i was talking to a guy that works in the arts lowercase a with an s <laughs> mm-hmm. and like so works with opera and dance companies and things like that he's like he's like a you know a thinker like a fellow and a foundation guy um and he was telling me how ashamed he was of his quote unquote sector. Um, and I was like, well, you know, what are you ashamed of? And he's like, well, they continue to assume that, that the, that the only way for them to survive is for the government to support them. And that the audiences need to like do the work to learn, to understand their art. Right. And that imagine if, if Amazon was like that <laughs> and he was like, Oh no, yeah. they're not good enough to be a customer. They have to do the work. And he's like, they've been telling me the same thing for 30 years as their audience numbers have declined and their cultural relevance has reached near zero, that it's still not their fault. It's their audience's fault. <laughs> Which I, I respect. I do think there's a side of culture that if you don't invest in a certain difficulty, and that's the, same, that's the exact same argument for food. If you just give people what they want on average, then at some point everybody has diabetes. Yeah. So there is an argument to say there should be some form of intervention in education and some form of control. And people might agree with that, might not agree with that. But I do think if you just let the market run its course, then the outcome is just Disneyland with Coca-Cola and hot dogs. <laughs> you know, that's the logical outcome of the market. I think that's the tension. I mean, ultimately, I would argue in, in his position, he, you know, the opera is arguing for them to be like a part of, they're the living met right like they're the greek or the yeah. mas- roman sculpture or they're the master painting just protect us just protect well, this i think i think it's an interesting point because let's say that as an argument you think the public needs education and so 10 percent of culture is controlled by government funding mm-hmm. so you say there are there are certain elements of culture that either need to be preserved or need to be nurtured and we're gonna; those are going to be things that can't stand on their own because you don't have to subsidize Justin Bieber. You know that, that that's already working. That he's found his audience; they're happy to pay. Mm-hmm. It, it's a working system. So you're like, okay, out of all the weird losers that can't deal with the market, we're going to subsidize a certain amounts. But then, then you get to the point of choice. It's like, are we going to preserve Mozart or are we going to stimulate new, difficult compositions of classical music? Yeah. And then it just gets into this really arbitrary area where you're like, why them and not that person? And why this and not that? And it's always unfair because it's based on choices of people on a committee and, you know, they're randomly chosen. They might not be the best person to choose it. And you can't measure it by popularity because the whole premise is against popularity because popularity Mm -hmm. leads to a certain type of culture and you want to intervene. So... Sounds like it a startup w- accelerator. I mean, yeah, but it will always be undemocratic. Mm-hmm. 
if and I'm saying if you just let the market run its course and you just end up with Justin Bieber. That's, yeah, but that gets yeah. us back to our original point and maybe the point we can close on too, which is that at the end of the day, there's just you and your relationship to yourself. And if you're if you'd like to have a relationship with an audience, I think it's a it's out there, right? You can choose to accept it or deny it. I, I think what I found is like you can find a niche audience now. That's what the internet afforded. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm happy to have a niche audience. Like it's thrilling. Every day feels like there, if I make something, yeah, but someone's you, gonna you, respond. You would not say no. Like if if you and your character would be offered a to be the mascot at a, at the Super Bowl. I, I think I think some artists would say like no, I don't like that audience. That's, I would do that. That's, yeah, but you would love it. And so the, I do think that's a personal <laughs> choice per artist. And some artists are like. I want to be a Dia Beacon and only speak to that audience. And some people say, oh, yeah, I'll do the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean, it's easy for me because I would just be critical with a, within the context. I always just <laughs> yeah. say, like, whatever the you context. You guys, you know football is bad for you. Yeah, right? Like, hey, anyone got some brain disease here? Like, any, <laughs> yeah. anyone suffering from mental <laughs> fog? Yeah. Concussed anyone? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Super Bowl halftime show with famous new media. Yeah, artists. social yeah. justice comedy coming straight at you. Yeah. <laughs> Just what you were waiting for. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, oh well. Well, great question. Like, because there's so yeah. much more to talk about. We didn't. Even yeah, really get and and to... and I do think on the topic of NFTs, I I think a lot of artists had a broader audience than just the, the biennial world. So they reached out to the internet and made stuff that was shared a lot. But then on the scale of memes, their work was not that major. And, and that was kind of a, a harsh judgment. Mm. Like a lot of people were like, oh, I'm really famous on the internet. And like, well, not as not, famous not as Nyan Cat. Not by internet scale. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So but let me let, learning that. But even place. still, like, you know, that film festival I talked about. But it, no, no, but just to finish was, that thought, at the same yeah. time, there were fine artists making NFTs. And they're like, I'm represented by Pace Gallery. So my NFT is 400 ETH. And then yeah, people are like, sell. Uh, never mind. Yeah. I, no, yeah. I just wanted to say on the flip side, like that film festival I mentioned, probably 200, 300 people in that room max. Maybe it was 400. But, you know, obviously on the internet, 400 people for like a live stream or something or, or watching your video, you're like, that's it? 400 people watched this? And so, you know, everything. Yeah, is but at the same the time, like, a, a, a big part of an audience for an artist is to give you energy to continue. Whether that audience pays you or that the audience stimulates you with energy, a big part of it is for you simply to be energized. That's yes. that's the role of I the agree. audience. And so you have to find the audience. I really believe the most important thing for an artist to do is to make more work. And whatever means, whether that's money or compliments or whatever keeps you going, that's the role of the audience. And uh, so... Yeah, it's that simple. Yeah, but I think I think you're right. There is an audience equation in terms of feelings of fulfillment. You can't that can't be ignored unless you're you're fine with the hermit thing. Go for it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's your choice. All right. Well, this is a fun conversation. Thank you, Victor. Yeah. Great Thank question. You. Thanks for reaching yeah. out on Instagram as well. Please send in your questions. So and we're if probably you're hesitant, not we're probably not recording next week. Well, the only way we'd record is if we were like recording face to face, which would be yeah, weird. I don't but think that's we could a whole that. weird thing. I'm yeah. not sure if that works. <laughs> not yeah. sure about that either. Okay. Um, yeah, but thanks for listening and we'll be back soon. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye bye.